We're happy to make podcasts available for selected ed webinars for your listening pleasure. If you'd like to receive a CE certificate, you must watch the video recording. Recordings and quizzes can be found in the EdWebinar archives. Please visit home.edweb.net slash podcasts for more information. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're thrilled to have day two of our Mental Health and Wellness Week. EdWeb is honored and grateful to present this event and do a deeper dive on this topic. So thank you so much for joining us. Um, but we're thrilled to have this illustrious panel on with us today um, and being being led and facilitating the conversation um, will be our Dr. Christopher Jensen, who was our keynote from yesterday. So I welcome Dr. Christopher Jensen. Um, he will be moderating this presentation of all of these panelists you see here. I'm going to turn it over to you, Chris, who we are so thrilled again, and um, I have to say extremely thankful to have you as part of this event. Um, we're thankful to all of you panelists for joining us today. So Chris, you can take it away and introduce yourself and feel free to introduce to the other panelists as well. You bet. Thank you, Charmaine. Um, very gracious of you. It is an honor to be here again. Um, yesterday, I had the privilege and opportunity to chat about action items regarding burnout to deter burnout for educators. And today we're shifting our look on school mental health to focus on the students, which obviously is a critical topic. Um, my background, very briefly, I was an emergency medicine physician for some time, um, and I left that post to dive into the world of public education. I was drawn to education by my love of teaching residents and med students at the bedside. Um, and found that education in public schools was a way harder job, to be honest. Um, taught for 10 years and now proudly serve as a health advisor for public health issues in schools. We are joined by an extremely talented panel. As they say, surround yourself with people, you know, smarter and better looking than you. And that's what I've tried to do today. Um, <clears throat> and so we're blessed. I'm going to run through them. Um, Ms. Christy Dixon is a dynamite in the counseling space. She was the Kansas Counselor of the Year not too long ago. Um, she has gone through all her formal training, pursuing her master's degrees, I believe, too. Um, Christy gives her heart and soul to the community that she belongs to um, and offers a really amazing, talented, and experienced perspective for today's discussion. Um, Heidi Alvin, um, as you can see, has is no stranger to great teaching. Um, she's been distributed multiple accolades through the course of her career, National Presidential Awardee for Excellence in Mathematics and Science, a Millican educator. Um, she has traveled around the United States and taught in multiple environments. Um, and she also, just to add to her resume, is an outstanding curriculum writer, um, including some curriculum that benefits student mental health space. <clears throat> and we're blessed to have Heidi here as well. And we are also given the opportunity of an extraordinary gentleman that I was proud to meet during my consulting pathways named Mr. Brett Dirksen. Um, he's a veteran educator, more than 20 years experience, both in the classroom and as an administrator. What makes Brett so amazing beyond the great human being he is, is that he happens to work in an environment outside Colorado Springs where he has a great deal of transient military families. So he's seen students come from all over the U.S. to spend some time in his community before they then move on again. And so one might argue if anyone has a true pulse on America, it might be Brett. Um, as he sees these students and families progress from all different spots. He happens to run a podcast, very successful podcast, and I believe YouTube associated with it called Schoolhouse Cracked. Um, so if you're interested in hot topics in the school space, um, be sure to check that out. 
So that is our panel. Three amazing educators. I will try to stay out of their way, but plan on me interjecting something now and then because I get too excited about some of these topics. Um, but we're going to roll through some of the hard-hitting issues that we see in school mental health um, and just really take them head on. So one last quick plug for Brett and his great organization through podcast there. I'm just going to start off with the reality that we all tread through every day. And that is through media attention, through anecdotal experience, through our own professional encounters, we know there's a lot of mental health strain on students, right? Um, some of the articles may sensationalize it, some are spot on. Um, but when we talk about school mental health crisis, the leading question I want to start with is, do you feel it's a crisis? Do you feel it's as bad as, as many people portray it to be? And Christy, I'm going to jump to our, our counselor on the panel first. Can you start us off? What do you, what do you think? Um, well, I think it kind of depends on who's asking and the perspective. I mean, I feel like that question is typically leading us in a specific direction depending on um, the goal. But I would say we are in a bit of a crisis at this point. I think that we've always, the, the issues that I see have always been present, but I think they are amplified following quarantine. Um, I think our students are in a, just they're just in a different space than I have seen in the last 20 years. So I think that um, as a, as a community, we recognize things differently than we have in the past and trying to get support for our, our adolescents at this point is tricky. The wait time for appointments is astronomical. It's so different than it used to be. And so, um, yeah, I would say crisis would be pretty accurate. Yeah, I appreciate that insight. Brett, what would you, what would you add to it? You know, crisis is a, a word that I'm, I'm thinking about uh, right now, and I don't know how to res respond to that. What I will say is, is that certainly the most significant thing that I plan for as an administrator and, and the thing that we discuss the most is, are we providing an atmosphere within our schools that counterbalances the challenges that our, our students and, and our kids and our communities are dealing with in regard to mental health issues? Uh, it was you know, six, seven years ago where we were talking about rigorous and relevant and relationships and, and we were really engaging in uh, dynamic curriculum and the 21st century skills and, and so many wonderful and, and tremendous things. But right now at the fore of our conversations is, are our kids okay? Are our teachers okay? And uh, how are we going to ensure that we can um, make them feel mentally and emotionally safe enough to even engage uh, in the school learning experience. So if that's a crisis to you, I'd say that's where we're at. Yeah, I, I appreciate you both saying that. And when you look at the magnitude of what, what schools are trying to take on right now, you know, this um, is there perceived learning loss? And if so, how do we reconcile that? And then, oh, by the way, and I, I don't mean to use sarcasm there, but students are in a very particular difficult spot. So how do you accomplish all those things in an eight hour day? Um, mm -hmm. Heidi, your thoughts on this, please. So I've been a teacher for 14 years, so not not as long as some, but enough to have seen some changes. And I've definitely noticed an increase in mental health issues. But along with that, I've noticed a decrease in the ability of young people to cope with just natural angst. 
Um, you know, Christy's correct that these issues have always been around, but I'll add that the average teen is less capable of handling the average stress than they used to be. Um, you know, issues that 20 years ago would have caused a teenager to blow up and be angry for a few days. Now we're seeing it resulting in suicide and self-mutilation. And so it's kind of hard to say, you know, which which is causing which because they they simply cannot handle the stress as well as as they used to be able to. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. And, and I think a, a lot of educators, um, we see some in the chat as well, but a lot of educators across the U.S. would share a similar sentiment. And so I'm going to kind of morph that. I mean, I think we're kind of moving towards it anyway, but do we think there was a precipitating event? You know, if we all agree that students are in a bad spot and, and we're seeing this on multiple levels, was there something that pushed students to this point or was this kind of slow and insidious? And so, so Brett, at this time, if you don't mind starting us off, because I appreciate the fact that you've been doing this you're still very young, by the way, but you've been doing this for a while and have seen kids from all over the U.S. I mean, can you put your finger on it or do you think this has been a slow, unfortunate development? No, I, I do think it's been uh, my response is insidious. I, you know, like there there have been, uh, you know, a spectrum of events from from when I was a teacher and a coach until I've moved into curriculum coordinating and into administration where we continue to dial up. Uh, the need, and, and I appreciate what Heidi said. It, it it first started off with with me and colleagues saying to ourselves, like, "Hey, you know, what's going on? You know, why aren't they tougher than that?" I I just moved their seat, and now I'm sending them to the to the counseling office, and then I'm getting some strategies from our school counselor on how I can, you know, move their seat or you know help them with this, that, and the other, but. Uh, you know, for me, and, and you and I have talked about this before, Chris, uh, if I was going, uh, if I'm talking to educators or parents, if I was going to say something that I thought uh, was a catalyst for this, it would be the, the handheld uh, device and, you know, the access, uh, the constant access to social media and the media in general. You know, before, you know, I've been teaching long enough since 1999, before students had uh, cell phones and before those cell phones had apps and before we had the social media uh, platforms and, and, you know, how they're getting um, instant messaging constantly from the world around them, I think has been something that's added up towards uh, a difficulty uh, paying attention. Um, uh, it's more challenging for us to get them excited about what, what learning is. They're so attuned to each other and to each other's feelings continuously. I think that there's an opportunity for them to can always be talking about their disappointments or body images, or whatever the triggers are. I'm not putting any of those triggers down or passing any judgment on them. What I am saying is that they, it's the uh, the rapid thinking, the constant rapid thinking about the collapsing world. And I think this was yeah. definitely happening prior to COVID. Like I think COVID is just actually a benefit of COVID has given us the opportunity for us to pause on some of the things and say, hey, wait a minute, we need to go back to the whole child. But it was certainly there in, in 2017 and 18 as well. Christy, before I ask you your thoughts um, to follow up, Brett, it's interesting you say that, and I, I appreciate you use COVID as almost like a timestamp of before and after. If you look at, this is just my science nerd self, data from 2019, before we knew what that virus was, American Academy of Pediatrics would tell you one out of three kids would graduate with a diagnosis of generalized anxiety disorder at some point during their K-12 career. 
um, CDC Youth Risk Behavior Survey looked at kids between 2009 and 2019, and there was a 40% increase in hopelessness and depressive symptoms, right? I mean, these are things that rock me to the core. Um, but I mentioned that because I agree with you, Brett. I, I think this issue was here well before a virus that we all had to trudge through. Christy, sorry, let me pass it on to you. What, what are your thoughts? Is this, is this slow growing? Is it insidious? Or do you think something jump-started it? Oh, I think it's been slow growing. If I think about, you know, I started substitute teaching in 94 while I was working on my first master's. And if I think about where those kids were then and where they are now, it's just been, and I think about the conversations that we were having then. And it was, um, the, you know, even then we were talking about building resilience in kids. I feel like that's always been a conversation and then cell phones, and then it was social media, and then it was, you know, kids are disengaged, and they're not learning how to relate in person. And then, you know, there's this constant comparison to how their life is working compared to what they're seeing on Instagram and Facebook, when that first rolled out was just a huge explosion. And, um, and then um, MySpace, how far back does that go? So it's it's just, I think it has been very insidious. And so kids have become more expressive, I think, about their emotions, which I think there's a piece of that that's been really healthy because I feel like they're more able to express how they're really feeling and and how that's impacting them, which is typically a healthy thing. But then it's it's like it's swung completely to the other side, which we often do in education. We always go from here to here and we forget that there's this whole middle section in between. So I think that um, um, I agree with Brett that quarantine forced us to really take a hard look at some things. And so I think sometimes for our parents, they think, oh, no, this is a sudden change. And as educators, we're more able to recognize like, no, this is, we, we tried to tell y'all that this was happening, but now you have been forced to face it. So um, I'm thankful for that. And that now as a community, I think we are able to recognize we really have to do something. Um, so I think that's maybe one of the silver linings out of an otherwise very dark cloud, but I think that it has always been an issue. Christy, I, I appreciate you spelling that out. And I think, maybe one of the reasons that our communities and societies feel that this was a rapid sudden change to your point um, is because they had a lot more time with their kids during 2020 and 2021. And, you know, I'll pick on myself to, to make it self-deprecating and hopefully safe, but I mean, there were a lot of good things and not so good things that I learned about my kid that year, you know, both my girls. Um, and, you know, that's, that's good. Now I can try and parent better. Um, but maybe it was sudden for a lot of parents and folks in our community that didn't realize or didn't get the daily exposure that teachers did. So, um, so I, I guess what I would say, and I'm going to give Heidi the next question because we're kind of working towards this, but if you think about what we chat about so far, we agree the crisis is real. And it seems like we believe that this is a slow insidious climb that maybe has been accelerated at certain points, but rather just driving for a while. So I'm going to ask the complete unfair question. Unfair in the sense that we know there's a lot of variables in play here. But what do you think some of the driving forces behind this slow climb are? 
you know, Heidi, can you start it off? What do you think some of the precipitating factors for why kids are struggling more and more over the years? Well, I'll touch a little bit on, you know, the, the previous question of, you know, what, um, you know, when did you really see the mental health crisis emerge? Because I think that touches on what the precipitating factors are. But in my personal experience, I really noticed a change around 2016, which was not quite 10 years after the smartphone and iPad became popular. And the kids entering high school in 2016 were young enough that they had spent a significant amount of their time during their formative years in front of a screen. They had their own devices and they did not know how to cope or interact or survive without them. Uh, Their social skills were much less developed and they naturally turned to their devices and social media for comfort instead of friends. And so those natural coping mechanisms that we always took for granted in in kids before, they didn't have them because that human interaction had been replaced by their devices and and that social media. And so as you know as far as other precipitating events I think the covid shutdown did irreparable damage to a generation of kids and we will continue to realize the fallout of that for many more years. But one thing that the covid shutdown profoundly demonstrated is that electronic interaction cannot be a substitute for face-to-face interaction. If it could we wouldn't be seeing so many problems because we did stay connected online through Throughout the shutdown. So we know that digital connection doesn't generate mental well being. Yet most of our children still interact socially through their devices and social media more than they do face to face. Children should not have smartphones. And I feel that it, that is one of, if not the biggest, precipitating factors in the mental health crisis. If I could just piggyback with Heidi on that, I mean, I, I was trying to say that in the first the first question. And, it, and that's, I, I noticed it around the same time frame, and it, in a very unhealthy way as a teacher, I was saying things like in 2016, like, hey, everybody put your best friend away, put it in the, put it in the backpack. And I'm referring to their smartphone. But it, 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 was, it was well into play that I could not connect with my students, either through the teaching and learning aspect or connect with them human to human until I had got their device away. And and so this, it, I would also agree with Heidi that that's about 10 years after they had them for so long, so mm-hmm. often. And and I would even say as a parent, I have three uh, wonderful kids in, in high school, uh, but to go along again with what with Heidi and Chris even saying, I, um, we have a hard time talking about uh, dating. Um, we have a hard time uh, encouraging. I mean, I still have to remind, I, have, I mean, I have wonderful kids, but I have to remind my 17 year old, Hey, you know, sh- shake their hand, make eye contact. You know, I'm like it, things that they actually did really well when they were six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old have backtracked on my, on my children, their ability to connect with others because, um, the winner is, uh, you know, Instagram or, or, or TikTok right now on, on influencing, uh, their feelings and, and and how they process the world. But I've also been watching some of the comments on, on our chat here, and I would be remiss if I didn't say that, like, let's acknowledge that there is a culture war uh, in, in our society that is national and international and does impact our, our children and ourselves on how we view the world and how we trust each other. Um, I've seen as an assistant principal in the last couple of years significant growth in language that is uh, – 
exclusive and harmful. Um, uh, kids picking on each other in regard to things that I thought we had gotten past, whether it's race and ethnicity or gender identity or sexual orientation. And my opinion on these things are, are simply that we no longer know how to be like really kind and caring to each other, that that's more difficult to give a compliment or to receive a compliment or to say something nice than it is to, you know, just go at somebody. And, um, you know, kind of, we all have kind of a, I'm seeing with youth a bumper sticker mentality. Like it's easier to Mm -hmm. shout out an insult and walk away uh, than it is to, to connect with them in a meaningful way. And that's just to piggyback on what Heidi was saying on, on how we, how we see how difficult it is for them to be, with each other. Yeah, it's Christy, you're up next, but if I can interject one thing, Brett, that really reigns true to me. Um, I remember one time in the classroom, I was particularly frustrated about a tweet that had been sent out about a student at our own school. Uh, And the kids, you know, awkwardly didn't know how to deal with it, but were laughing, thought it wasn't a big deal. Um, And so I did a quick thing where I just put like some things about me, some statements about me on a piece of paper, like Dr. Jensen has an ugly face or Dr. Jensen has really long nose hairs or whatever. And I had them pulled out and I'm like, say it to me. And they couldn't. And then I said, then why would you ever have the false sense of confidence that you can say something 10 times worse on your phone? And they got quiet. And it was like it had not crossed their mind. Christy, I'm sorry. Can you add some value to this? What, what, <laughs> what, uh, <laughs> the, the two panelists have been great. I'm saying, can you correct me and add some value to it? I was on a rant. No, I mean, I, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, I think that, you know, there were two years where our kids didn't learn how to school. And so um, not learning how to interact with people in person, how to look at their face and see the emotion, see the consequence of what you're saying and how you are interacting and how you're treating other people. That's learning how to how to treat people like a human being. So we completely interrupted their emotional growth and now we are paying the price for that. So they didn't learn how to speak appropriately to their teachers. Um, We did a lot of coaching on how to send appropriate emails and not to use slang and to actually spell out complete words, um, which is just a life skill and how to make a mistake and to learn from it and not have it shut you down and, you know, get real snarky with whoever is trying to gently correct you and help you learn how to do things differently. Our kids didn't learn how to be teammates or work as a a group member. So we're seeing our students are, you know, emotionally years behind and we are still treating them as the 15 year old that we see in front of us, but emotionally they're, you know, 11. And so um, I think that's been an adjustment for teachers across the world, really trying to figure out how do I treat you um, appropriately as the adolescent that I see before me? Because in some ways you very much are 15, but in other ways you are very much a fifth grader and how to balance that. And, and it's not like, you know, the kid that I taught three years ago who was 15 and kind of off in different ways because adolescents are all over the map. So I think it's just been, it's just an ongoing adjustment for our teachers. Meanwhile, as adults, you know, we've got our own kind of emotional trauma hangover from quarantine and that we are all experiencing. So the, the combination is just a total clash figuring out what we're doing with that. 
And what we know about trauma in general is that it doesn't carry a timestamp. So mm-hmm. it just, it's, it's just always present and it's present in our children and it's present in us. And we are just, you know, we're, we're doing the best we can trying to navigate this together. So um, I, I agree that there's been such a backslide in the way that we treat each other. And, and that includes adults as well. And so we've, we've got a lot of work to do. So then when you have this emotional crisis, it's, it's hitting us. Eight, eight to 88, we're, we're all experiencing this. So well said. I appreciate that. Um, before, we, before we move on to another question that I want to pose, I'm going to just follow up this comment. So we kind of brought out, you know, the, the challenges and the setbacks of social media. Obviously, there's some good to it, too. You know, there's, you can fundraise, you can connect with people in other ways, but we see a lot of drawbacks in our kids. But one of the things I want to toss out before we move on and, and push it aside is, do we, the four of us and the folks watching us on this discussion, worry about how kids value their internal self-worth because if my metric for i'm popular or important is how many likes i get and christy you send something out and you get 500 and i get 10 you know is that is that what is that another thing that's influencing kids in terms of their potential fragility and and how they view themselves i mean heidi what do you what do you think about that i think there's definitely more categories for students and and young people to criticize themselves criticize themselves and what they're used to be. When, you know, when I was in, in high school, I didn't have social media. And so the number of likes I got or, you know, people's comments was not a category in my realm of how I viewed myself or judged myself. And so, I mean, I'd agree with you. There's just a completely new category of openings for, self-criticism. And and granted, in, in some ways, it can be good as well. Of course, social media can be a, a good tool, obviously, as, as any tools can be good or bad. But again, when, when these students are so young and so impressionable, again, it, instead of it being a category for more self-esteem, it often more often than not becomes another category for um for self criticism. Yeah, I I appreciate you saying that. Brett, you agree? Yeah, I think the I I think something that needs to be added on as a layer to that is the likes or don't likes or the um emojis and everything else is that they in every way, whether they're positive or they're negative, have added a significantly shallow mechanism by which we share how we are feeling and connecting with others. So maybe I post something on my social media and I get a whole bunch of of different likes. I'll just use myself as an example. But for me, I'm uh, on Facebook. I want to see the comments and I want to connect with my friends from, you know, I love Facebook. I went to high school and college in Ohio. I live in Colorado. I have family all over the country. I uh, lived in Laos for several years. Like it's this unbelievable platform for me to remain connected with people I've met over the last 20 years. But what I think is happening is like the thumbs up and the the heart emojis and everything else. It's just super shallow. And it's it's like actually supplemented our entire like way of interacting. So if if I, I have children who are high schoolers, I don't know that they've ever 
had somebody say, hey, man, I, I really appreciate your leadership or, hey, thanks for helping me out with those math problems. And you're always kind of there for us. Like, you I mean, they're so used to the thumbs up, the heart emojis that that has essentially replaced our ability for like really meaningful and in-depth ways of giving each other feedback on our relationships or our connections. So it's not just those symbols. It's it's what we're no longer doing, which is mm-hmm. um, you know, deeper ways of, of having connection. Yeah. Christy, you're a lot more tech savvy than me. What do you think? <laughs> well, I agree with that. And that's so interesting because I'm, I'm listening to Brett and, and I, hundred percent see that. And at the same time, the flip side of that is that something that I have noticed about this generation is that they will read you for filth at the drop of a hat. Mm -hmm. So if you say something that upsets them, they will go all the way off and there's no room for error. And so, you know, you said the wrong thing and they will let you know, and it is stunning like, oh, I maybe just want to be quiet. And as an adult, sometimes it is really intimidating to to kind of, you know, I'll tread lightly um, depending on who I'm around because the last thing I want to do is to get checked by a child because they have no fear. So in, in some ways, exactly what Brett said is that they're so accustomed to like a thumbs up or a heart or even in text messaging you know, you can uh, on iPhones in particular, you can just give it a little emoji, um, just like on Facebook. But then if you have said the wrong thing or even if they're thinking back for a couple of years about something that, that they have heard someone say, um, and it's kind of that whole council culture mentality thing, um, which is a whole other webinar. But um, <laughs> that's they are quick to say so many things. And very rarely are those things expressions of gratitude and love and support. The things that they will have full paragraphs about are usually negative. So trying to find ways to help our, our kids say, these are the things that I am grateful for. This is where my gratitude lives and directing them mm-hmm. to find, you know, on social media, because you can find whatever you want on social media. You can find those accounts that encourage you to celebrate the good and to look at this is what a healthy relationship looks like. And this is what a healthy dating situation looks like. And here's how to know if you are in an unhealthy space, but at the same time, you can find, you know, all of the, um, all of the tricks on how to best support your disordered eating habit. So, you know, you can find exactly what you're looking for, but helping our kids, choose the positive developmentally that's just not really what they're looking for yeah i all really good comments i so appreciate that and and christy on the last thing you said one thing that breaks my heart is um you know you're not gonna make that after school special relationship with every kid that's just not how teaching or being a principal works but one thing that always killed me inside was why'd you not tell me why why'd you go to your phone and list four paragraphs about it, you know, because I could have in the moment, real time, faster than your device, giving you a hug or giving you feedback or acknowledge the suck, you know? And I I think the thing that really tears at me is I know the answer why, because that's their creatures of habit, but why was your response to air your grievances over social media when you could have talked to an adult who cared about you? 
So anyway, <clears throat> good points. Okay, so obviously now that we've established we're all huge fans of social media, let's try and move forward. Um, but sarcasm aside, I just want to say the great thing about educators is even in the midst of frustrations, and I truly mean this, even in the midst of challenges and fatigue, they want to do the right thing and fix things. And, and that's, uh, you know, I, I've never seen, I see people needing to take a pause. I need people, people needing to step back. I appreciate all those things, but I think educators genuinely want to fix things. So the reality is that schools have kids during the school year, academic year, roughly 40 hours a week, right? And so we've got this youth mental health crisis, which it's not fair to pin all the intervention and solutions on schools. It's not practical, it's not wise, and it's also not fair. But one would think if you have kids that long, you need to be part of the solution. So how can schools intelligently, efficiently, and without exhausting their staff offer some part of the solution? What, what do we think? Brett, uh, in your eyes, are there things we can do to make little bits of it better? Yeah, I'm not really overwhelmed by it, uh, to be honest with you. I think some of the gains, again, I, one of those things that I, I feel like COVID was a, a blessing for was it slowed us down enough that we could uh, pin our concerns of, of, about mental health upon a thing that wasn't our fault. Uh, so like when, you know, when I struggle with my own children in my own house, I can say, well, COVID really set them back. I don't have to say, <laughs> geez, my wife and I are actually uh, competent professionals and incompetent <laughs> uh, parents. And so I could say, hey, you know, here's this problem and, and thank you, COVID, for taking the blame. But what, what's happening now in, in our school and in, in my school district, I'm very, very proud of, is that we are able to acknowledge it. And so we can just go back and do things uh, that we did well before, like love and logic, and just plan time in uh, as a part of our curriculum to have meaningful conversations, put relationships first, to help kids with difficult conversations, to allow our, our curriculum and the mechanisms by which we communicate within our curriculum to be more intentional and um, and kind and and face to face. We got exhausted during COVID about being on learning management systems and being digital. And so we're we're closing our laptops down and we are doing cooperative learning again and being face to face. So I, I do think that because we have our students for 40 hours a day, if we've uh, decided that we want to help kids build make connections with each other, um, if we've decided that relationships precede uh, the syllabus, uh, then we can just go back and do so many of those things that we valued uh, forever um, and structure and design them. I mean, that's how you regrow these things is by looking at our healthy habits. And and I, uh, I agree, we're having a hard time. And when I was talking uh, with Christy about it, you know, teacher retention, teacher recruitment, uh, filling those spots is, is more and more difficult. But one of the nice things about the staffs that we have in our schools is they're coming in because uh, they're up for the task. And so I'm, I'm not as discouraged as, as many people are. I just, uh, I look across the national landscape and I worry about some school boards and some school districts uh, kind of trying to um, rub some dirt on it or ignore the problem. But those places that are, are facing uh, our kids and their needs, I think we're doing a great job. And I think if you give us time to continue uh, to put into our school day meaningful interactions that we're going to bear fruit. I appreciate that. Heidi, thoughts on this? Yeah, so there's a lot of different angles to come at this 
this question from. Um, but when I hear a lot of people outside of the education field talking about, oh, what, what should be done? A lot of times what they mention are, are counselors and, you know, counselors need to help the students and, and whatever. Um, but school counselors are very limited on what they can do because actually, and, and Christy can correct me on this, but just in the areas that I've been in, actually counseling kids is a tiny part of what they're what they're required to do. That's what they want to do, but they have so many other requirements on them. They want to help kids, but that gets drowned out by the avalanche of administrative responsibilities they're expected to carry out. Assigning classes, testing, enrollment tasks, paperwork, so much more. It leaves them little time to actually meet with students one-on-one -on -one and address mental health issues. And the same is true of teachers and administrators, social workers, and other school staff. We have very little time to help individual students, even though we want to, even though that's why all of us got into education, is to help individual students. If the average person knew the fraction of paperwork and bureaucratic responsibilities that educators are responsible for, they would be shocked. School staff need to address mental health, but they're already performing beyond capacity. Some responsibilities need to be removed in order to allow school professionals to really be able to do what they all want to do, which is help children. And so that may be hiring more staff, hiring more counselors, hiring, um, you know, additional, additional staff, bringing classroom sizes down to 15 to 15 students to one teacher. A um, lot of different, different ways to do this, but schools are, they're overextended. We're doing everything we can and not enough of the stuff that matters because it gets drowned out by all the other stuff we have to do. And, and teachers and counselors and administrators, we hate that. We want to be helping the students, but it's, it's almost been pushed down to the bottom of the task list because of all of the other requirements by the state and districts and, and the government as, as a whole. I, I appreciate your passion about that. And I think you're echoing what, gosh, an overwhelming majority of educators feel. So thank you for, for taking that straight on. Christy, our resident counselor, what you got? Oh, Heidi is singing my song. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'm a big fan um, because that's exactly it. I mean, I hear from school counselors all the time about, you know, if I could stop working on coordinating yet another standardized test, I would have time to work with children. So um, there is, and I am fortunate, and the team that I work with, I work with three other counselors in my building, and they're phenomenal. And we work so well together as a team. And we are um, very strategic about how we carve out our time to work with our children. And we are also supported by a fantastic um, school social worker and a school psychologist. And so the, between the six of us, we do our best to have individual sessions. We have group sessions. We um, have classroom guidance. Um, and then we work hard to partner, you know, to kind of create that village with our classroom teachers and with our administration and then our school nurse and our school resource officers. So, you know, we're trying to come at all of these different issues from as many angles as possible 
to make sure that our students are taken care of as much as we can. And the amount of expectation that is on the classroom teacher right now is it's it's ridiculous. There's really no other way to say it. It's it's a lot. Um, but trying to rebuild some some trust with our community. Um, quarantine really damaged a lot of that relationship. I think it was it was so hard for families to navigate this and you know, the the coverage of some contentious school board meetings and the policies and masking and the and um, you know, and then CRT comes up and then people don't understand curriculum. And then we've got some, some different ideas about what gender should look like. And I mean, there's just so many things that came out all at once. And I think a lot of people were confused and there were some really strong opinions. And school is something that everybody experiences. So it became very easy to make a firm decision and then criticize what people believed was happening or should be happening. And then schools really took the brunt of that. So I think there's a lot of um, repair. There's a lot of rupture and now it's time for a lot of repair so that we can try to rebuild that trust and then hopefully um, offer more of what Brad was talking about and offer some resources and some community education around mental health support and teaching our, our families and parents about supporting their children and teaching them more about anxiety and mental health strategies and what to do when this happens and where to go and where to find additional support and resources. And because, um, you know, like Heidi was saying, we can't do it all. We, we really can't but we can try to help you figure out who else can support you in addition to your school. Yeah. I'd like to acknowledge yeah. both of those things, particularly Heidi and Chris. Chris and I had talked about this uh, last week as we were pre preparing for this opportunity. I, I do think that um, mental health support staff from school counselors, school psychologists and social workers will, all, will always be out, outnumbered. Like the solution of resources like I, that goes back to the very first question. Are we in a crisis? I guess the, my answer to that now is yes. I, I don't see how we would ever have the capacity to have well-trained mental health professionals helping in our schools resolve the mental health issues. It's, it's too large in its scope and sequence for that. Uh, the one thing I'll say about being hopeful again, though, is, is that I, I work at a school in a school district and it's not the same everywhere. My, you know, my kids go to a different school district than what I uh, lead in. And it, it is our decision as our community in a, in a military community that the curriculum is kindness, that like the number one issue that we're dealing with is, is connections. And we are getting gains in our teaching and our learning because nothing supersedes knowing kids' names, helping kids get along with each other, making sure we have a safe space wherever kids go. When schools and school leaders make that the priority and when the community is accepting that that is the most important thing to be done uh, in a school week is, is a, uh, a curriculum of kindness, then we can make gains on the reading, the writing, and the test scores. It cannot go in any other order. You know, if you want to really get your growth scores up and then say, hey, let's sprinkle in some pretty fun days here every once in a while, make sure our kids are okay, that, that won't work. The approach, we, we are at the place 
we're, we're taking care of our young people and, and helping them be connected with each other and have meaningful relationships. When that's number one, then we'll begin moving forward. But I do want to agree with my friends on the panel. Like it's we're absolutely outgunned um, in the task of correcting this problem. Like we can't be the institution who does that. Right. I, I really appreciate what all three of you said. And it, it's so well put. And Brett, to piggyback off of what you just brought up, you know, and, and Christy, you mentioned this too, but, you know, if you had all the fun, if you had more funding, if you doubled your funding, you still probably wouldn't have enough counselors or school psychologists if you're lucky enough to have one or social workers to divvy this out in terms of patient volume. And I'm saying that as a former ER physician, knowing about how many healthcare workers it takes to handle a certain volume of potential patients. But, you know, emphasizing tier one type support, working on self-esteem, um, developing personal efficacy, resilience, whatever you want to call it, if that becomes a priority in the curriculum and an everyday experience in the classroom, as opposed to a one-off SEL talk in a gym, you know, but you're actually letting teachers prioritize connecting with kids and, and driving that kindness and communication and come to me when you have a problem and not your phone and little things like that. The problem that I think most educators feel is, well, there's too many other things to do. And that's how I felt when I was in the classroom my 10 years. However, I would humbly argue the silver lining of the crisis we're in is there are very few people right now that would be upset if you said the priorities in my classroom are to make kids feel safe, well-connected, and treated, treated with respect. And if that means I'm 20% less the teacher in terms of academic content, I could still hit all my state standards in anatomy and chemistry and cut 15 minutes of lesson time every day to just talk about valuable lessons of life with kids. I still could. Um, and so I think... What I'm really trying to get to is, is there value to schools going on, not in an antagonistic way, but kind of going on the offensive with their community of saying, look, we've got all these problems with kids today in general. Here's what we're built for. We're going to tackle making sure your kids are connected, making sure your kids are respected, making sure your kids learn some basic skills for life. There you go. That's what we're going to do. Um, and, and it's not as simple as that. I completely understand it. But I think schools need to go on the offensive with communities and say, here's what we're doing to do for our little slice of the pie and, and making kids better off. So um, I just appreciate everything all of you said with that. I'm going to jump to what I think is the most fun, albeit maybe a far-fetched question. But if you had access to an insane amount of money, just egregious amounts, like more than Disney, um, and you could use that to help schools where's one thing you'd spend it? Heidi, where's one way you'd just go wild with a budget to help kids and, and staff? Well, first of all, I'd hire more staff, um, teachers, but also all the support staff, school counselors, school psychologists, school social workers, everything, right? Reduce student-teacher ratio to 15 to 1, no more than 15 to 1, because the relationships, so much can be accomplished through relationships. And when students have a relationship with their teacher, that provides a lot of those coping mechanisms because they have someone to go to. But when you have a class of 30 students, it's, it's, it's not conducive to that. Um, I would say, uh, you know, districts are investing a lot of money into programs and trainings and resources right now, which is great but they lack the personnel to implement those new initiatives. And, and, and as a teacher, you know, going to so many different trainings and yes, I want to do this. Yes. I want to implement this in my class. Yes. I want to do this, 
but there's just not enough people. There's more kids than there are staff to be able to implement those programs. And so I would say it it all really comes down to hiring enough people because programs don't change kids. People change kids. People people help people, you know, and, and programs that work consist of people who are working. And so to throw money at, at programs and trainings, but not making sure that the staff is there is is really kind of counterproductive so i would hire more people love it thank you christy um yeah i I agree with heidi um because the relationships is what keeps us safe i mean that's what reduces all the violence at school um it's it changes everything and obviously as a as a counselor i would love the opportunity to make sure that every student had access to, you know, like six to eight sessions a year. Like it was just a natural part of the process. And, and it was um, understood that every child took advantage of those sessions and that, and there was not pushback from the parents and that we had some family sessions as well. And everybody got to have them. And I think because so many of our families Gen- and our parents, they genuinely love their children, but they don't necessarily always know how to express that in a way that their child can receive it. And just a little bit of help, a little bit of coaching, um, some facilitation of how to have some conversations and to say some of the hard things and and um, to work together. Just a little bit would go such a long ways. And for kids to be able to say the things and to process out loud and mm-hmm. understand that you feel super awkward. So does the kid next to you. And that's part of development. And, and it's really actually super normal. I, uh, that would be a dream come true. If every kid could just have a little bit of counseling and know that they're going to be okay. I would love that. Brett, can you finish us off? Yeah, I'd go wild. I'd do uh, quadruple 10 times the amount of different things that kids can learn, hire a bunch of people that aren't certified teachers uh, take them on camping trips and teach them to fish and, and quilt and, um, you know, do all kinds of different things that are non-traditional curriculum where the relationships are more more natural. Like if you're learning how to fish, you're going to uh, be able to partner up and be able to slow down and have a conversation with a kid that you may not typically connect with outside of, of your clique. You might learn something that your grandma did really well, um, like gardening or making a spaghetti sauce or or something, but um, I would cut out the rat race and, and get uh, really interesting people in and, and let them be creative with kids and, and create time and space away from uh, this constant uh, grind that we force our kids through. It's like, we're all going to work and we're then we're forcing our kids into work. And then we're all just kind of racing around like this. I think there's a whole lot of really neat things that could be community-based um, and resource rich. And, you know, I work on a military installation in a beautiful city and I'd say 80% of my kids have never even had a chance to explore, hike, explore our area, uh, ride a bike. I don't know, just a thousand of those different things that have nothing to do with the state standards. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think the most fun moments I ever had in the classroom was when I took a pause you know, from the academic nature of things and just connected a topic to what was going on in kids' lives and just have some real life moments. And those were the best moments of teaching. Um, 
And sadly, I think we feel all too consumed and, and those moments get buried nowadays. Yeah, um, I mean, just think, think about what happens to a kid. They go, they take a, an algebra test and then they go to their next teacher who's super enthusiastic about literature in their essay. And then they got to bend their brain <laughs> right into like this new grind. Uh, and then maybe they got to go into the, you know, their, their third grind right after an, after another. And then they go to the cafeteria and they're scared and don't know how to have meaningful conversation with their peer. And it's like, where's just the opportunity where like just learning is fun. Learning doesn't have a pressure. Learning doesn't have a test. And then all those other things that we do really need them to learn in academia, their, their body and their mind more relaxed, more ready for it. Love it. Um, okay, so I just want to personally thank all three of you for being on this panel discussion today. Um, I've been very fortunate in my life to cross paths with each of you. Um, and the insight and the very real comments you made were certainly appreciated. I'm going to turn this over to Charmaine, who I think is still listening in the background um, to field some of the questions we may have gotten that were flying through the chat and couldn't keep up with. Um, Charmaine, are you able to guide us through the next step? It was an amazing discussion to listen to, to watch. All of you are an incredible, incredible panel. <laughs> um, and, and I'm sure uh, all the attendees have to agree. It's, it's just been great to watch and to listen to your answers. It's just not just thought provoking, just so heartfelt. Um, we hear your passion <laughs> and we see it um, definitely in, in all that you're saying. Um, I, I'm happy to, you know, ask one or two questions, um, and that way, feel free. Whoever wants to to jump at them as, as well, especially yourself, Chris, if you'd like to answer some. Um, but I have to say, I don't know if you guys will comment in the chat, but man, we need to do this again. <laughs> we really need to consider a part two. Um, but you know, and if you're interested in something like that, please definitely say yes in the chat. Um, and it's so funny, our, our team was considering also, um, you know, doing maybe having one of these days uh, focus a little bit on social media. So it's, it's wow, a resounding yes. So thanks, everyone. <laughs> All right, great. <laughs> um, so that said, one question that I, I think um, I wanted to highlight, uh, folks, um, a few, actually, a few educators, I have to say, were posting this in the chat. The concern, though, with assessment, the, the concern with the standardized testing, the concern with all of these things, as well as to Heidi's point earlier about the overwhelming tasks that are placed upon you that, you know, have, you have to complete on the administrative side. Um, it's just how how is there a balance? Is there even possible to be a balance for educators as well as students um, with navigating all of the the tasks that need to be completed versus how to connect with students? Like, is is there a way to actually get through it, get past it, and and how do you present that to administrators? How do you change the game, hopefully, in your district or state? Um, with trying to go towards a model that's more relationship, you know, based, how, how do we, or, or maybe just, how do you balance the two? Just how does that happen? I can try and take a stab at this since I'm in a safe space. I no longer have an education employer. Um, <laughs> but I, I will tell you that I tried to ride that balance and it crushed me. Mm. Um, it was a big deal to me to try and hit all the anatomy targets or the chemistry targets at a real big depth until I had this sadly slow to come to realize epiphany moment of, 
okay, Chris, you've gone through med school. You did some rigorous science training. There is no way you can prepare a kid in this classroom for high school chem or anatomy for what lies ahead of them should they go that route. And most of them won't go that route in the first place. So why are you kidding yourself? So I didn't go rogue and I still taught the state standards, but I started doing them much more quickly so I could teach life skills. Now, I didn't get to live out my dream like Brett described and take kids camping. But let's say we were going to talk about the chambers of the heart that day. Fine, done in seven minutes. And then I talked about the interesting world of heart transplant and the ethics behind it. And how would you feel if you're on either side of that? And what do you think the doctor feels like in the crossfire of that? And we just talked about emotion in life. And if my superintendent walked in, it was still science. (laughs) And I was very honest with the parents. And in the back to school night, I literally said, just so you know, there's another anatomy teacher in the building. My priority is going to be problem solving and relationships. I'll teach what the state tells me to teach, but my priority is going to be problem solving and relationships. That's what I'm gunning for. And if you want someone that's a little more test focused, pull your kid. In 10 years, I had two kids pulled. Wow. Wow. So that's how I went at it. Everyone's going to have their own solution. These three are smarter than me. Uh, they, they probably be better. Any, anyone else? Yes, feel free. Dive in. <laughs> I think we're getting closer. I do. I, I think uh, uh, states boards of education are coming closer to finding, you know, discovering more authentic ways to determine uh, how kids are learning and, and to what extent that they're learning uh, meaningful uh, things and and, and uh, doing them. I do think that uh, when you look like across this panel, more people, Heidi and Christy and I's, age who have taught through the pain of pretending like the state assessments mattered to us when when they didn't um when when we hated doing it to kids and as we get into leadership positions we we don't want to do that uh to our children uh anymore i you know i think we are getting closer but you know my father always just say but we can tell your character about how you spend your time your talent and your money, and I would bring that to your to your your school leaders, your, your school districts, and your school boards, and ask them what where where are we really spending our time and our money, and is that what we really value? Um, and if they are truly valuing uh, those assessments, um, I, I find that rare, and it, it's really just a call to action. But when we it's not in line with our values. No person came uh, to become an educator because they were phenomenal at standardized tests, whether they were or they weren't. Uh, but it, it really is calling people out on what they what they truly believe and if if they're actually executing it in schools with what they value. I would say I just I totally agree. And I view academics as the conduit through which to teach life. So the main thing we should be teaching, as as has already been mentioned in here, is is life, is is relationships, is all of those things that you really, really, really actually need to know. And um, viewing the social, emotional, and life skills and all of that as something added to the plate does not work because the students see that we're just throwing it in and that it's not important. And when it's a once a week thing and it's not integrated into everything, it's like, okay, now it's time to learn about character ed and we're going to talk about honesty today, you know, and, and, and that's, that's great to a great starting point, but the students mm. don't really see that as authentic. Mm. But when the academics are seen as the conduit through which you teach the really important stuff, not saying that academics aren't important, but if I need my students to know either that the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell or how to deal with forgiving someone, 
it's more important that they <laughs> that they know about forgiveness. And so viewing the SEL and life skills not as something added to the plate, but viewing it as the plate upon which everything else is built. Academics are taught upon the plate of teaching life skills, teaching SEL. And when that becomes the main emphasis, you can still teach all the academics, just like like what Chris was saying, you know, you he's still teaching science. But we gotta we gotta make it the plate upon which we we build everything and not just something added to the plate. I love it. Chris, you don't have to answer, but I don't know if you wanted to share anything. No, okay. <laughs> no, that's totally fine. Um, in terms of your responses, though, I have to say it, it leads into kind of my my closing thought. I was just speaking with another colleague in the industry, and and they spoke about how when it comes to SEL, you know, this particular educator they were speaking with, they said, you know what, we front load all of that as much as we can in the beginning of the year because we want to connect with students we want to make sure that we're getting to know who they are we're making sure to make those connections and i have to say i love that you said that brett earlier meaningful interactions meaningful connections like that is what's going to matter that's what's going to make it authentic heidi right so i think that that's amazing um that you know all of your perspectives here are, are almost kind of one in the same i love that <laughs> so um i mean i'm happy to ask one more if folks want to stick around and then we'll get ready to wrap up um but i have to say those that might have to get going um it, it's been wonderful to have you with us so just one more question um so when it comes to addressing you know i i think my heart kind of broke earlier when um you were speaking about the fact that teens just or teens or maybe it's just all students just don't have you know the same ability or the bandwidth if you will to deal with that stress and 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 manage it as they might have before it's just it's just they don't have the capacity in the same way what would you say because i i know that all of you were kind of like hesitant sometimes i mean uh, bringing up the hesitancy that sometimes educators have to say you know what i'm not sure if i want to say this or that it's just you know we're, we're worried about a lot of pc so i would say if you see a student that was stressed out or overwhelmed or, or anything, what would be your encouragement um, to share with that student? How would you try to connect with them? Whether you had a relationship with them or not, what is your redirect to be able to encourage these educators today with what to do? Uh, I would say my biggest encouragement is always just to ask. And, and if you ask out of genuine concern, um, my experience has always been that children know the difference. Just like if you if you're nervous to pick up an infant, they know and they start screaming. <laughs> and and adolescents are very much the same way. So if you ask out of genuine concern, and um, and and I've seen Chris do this, and and we have heard stories of children who have come back and said later how much of an impact that has had that has had. And he won't brag about this, but Chris has actually saved lives unknowingly um, because he bothered to ask, hey, are you okay? And that was it. That's all he had to say. And it can be that simple. And and sometimes our, our staff doesn't realize that's all you have to say. Hey, are you okay? Mm. And that's all you have to do to start the conversation. And sometimes kids will say, yeah, or not really, but I will be. But somebody noticed and then if you're not their trusted adult, sometimes that's all it takes for them to seek out their trusted adult. 
And wow. so if you're, if you're worried about a child, please just ask if they are okay and let them know it's okay if you're not. And I'm happy to help you get somewhere where you can be okay. I think it was Heidi that first brought it up. And I, I just want to acknowledge and agree that in my time in education, I, I very often think to myself, geez, this is overwhelming how difficult what I consider this small situation to be and how how often that occurs with, with the young people that I, I work with. But my starting point is to always acknowledge the strength that already exists. So they, they may be in the hallway or I may be seeing them, they may be in the office or whatever else. They may be suffering from an issue that I would consider uh, to be, should be a low level trigger, but I'm still going to acknowledge the strength in it. It's like, hey, mm-hmm. you're here. You came in today. I I know that you're having a tough time. Thank you for being here. You made it to the front office. You made it to 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 your your trusted teacher. Or you stayed with your trusted like whatever it is. It's to acknowledge whatever strength that exists there. Because uh, if they get to Christie's office where she can build them back up or give them some really good skills or ways to go forward, they're not they're not going. We're not going to get them to her if we can't. Um, give them a, a, a position of strength or power to start from. We got to give them some cornerstones. And so one way of dealing with it is to acknowledge the strength that that is there, what, whatever it is. I want to bring up something that Gail on the chat said. She said, come to me when you have a problem, not your phone needs to be on a t-shirt. And, and I love that. <laughs> and I, I think it's so true to, to let students know that they can come to you because their default when they have a problem is their phone. And the, if they can know that we as adults are open and available, then they know that they can come to us when they have a problem in, instead of their phone. And so I think that availability and helping them to know that they're seen and that they're valued and that what they're going through matters and that we are available to, to help them is really important. Chris, you want to close us off and then I'll, I'll, I'll Oh, yeah. honestly, I, I think we all just got some really wise advice. You know, everyone has their own style of how they are going to make an impact with the child, but the respect, the, letting them feel seen and heard, um, the taking the time to connect with them, because I don't think anyone could argue there's anything more important in your day. You know, it, it's, a, it's a photocopy you're missing. It's a lab that could have set up, been set up better. It, it doesn't matter like a kid matters um, in that relationship. So I wholeheartedly agree with my friends and brilliant colleagues on the panel with the advice they shared. And, um, you know, they're, they are the the fun and the good parts of school. And I'm glad they're here. Awesome. Wow. Again, thank you all four of you. You have been amazing. Thank you to all the attendees who stuck around for a few more minutes um, while we went over that question. I just really wanted to kind of close us out remembering again, this is about our students. So thank you. Um, I do want to make sure I highlight that Dr. Jensen's book is going to be available soon. So feel free to get that QR code. You can scan it. Um, You can check out these slides as well in the community. So I'll talk about that in just a bit. 
Um, and then do note that there are more sessions this week. So we encourage you to go to the link that you see here. Um, our EdWeb team will be posting it in the chat. That way you can register for the upcoming events for the rest of the week um, and get to hear more as well, even from um, some of the folks who are our sponsors for this week about how they're helping schools as well. So you can be able to share that information with your administrators with your families and be able to have more resources. Lastly, I have to say it again. Thank you. Thank you, Christy, Heidi, Brett, Chris. You all were amazing. Um, we really appreciate your expertise and, and just your thorough knowledge of how to help teachers, to help educators, no matter where everyone might be, even across the globe. All of this, I'm sure, is going to be very impactful. So thank you for the conversation. <laughs> Well, thank, thank you for hosting us, Charmaine. On behalf of the panelists, we, we appreciate the opportunity to be here. <laughs> well, thank you, Ed Webb. Thanks all of you for, for participating today. Um, and everyone, thank you so much for joining us. We hope to see you tomorrow at 12 noon Eastern time again for the next session. Thank you, everyone. Have a wonderful afternoon. We hope you enjoyed this Ed Webb podcast. If you'd like to receive a CE certificate, you must watch the video recording Recordings and quizzes can be found in the EdWebinar archives. Please visit home.edweb.net slash podcasts for more information.